You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi there, I'm your host, Curtis Finley, and this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi there, you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast, and I am Curtis Finley, your host. And today, I have an interview with... Michael Mantlow, who is the brother of Bill Mantlow. And if you have, are well-versed in your comic history, you know Bill Mantlow as a prolific writer for Marvel Comics, primarily for Marvel. He worked in some other places as well, but best known for his work on things like Micronauts and Rom and, and the Hulk, Cloak and Dagger, creating Rocket Raccoon. Like He's done a ton of stuff, and uh, you can't read any title throughout the 70s and 80s without stumbling across Bill Mantlow in some way. Now, uh, you also might be aware that Bill had a bad accident in the 90s that's left him brain damaged for the last couple of decades. And it's his brother, Michael, who's been taking care of him for this whole time. Recently, he launched a GoFundMe page to help with with his finances because he's found himself in kind of a bit of a hole through various circumstances. And that's when I reached out to him to see if he'd want to talk about Bill and uh, bring awareness to his GoFundMe page and stuff. But in, in the time that passed between me talking to him and now, um, he's closed the campaign. So you can't actually give to this campaign anymore. But uh, you can still uh, donate to some very worthwhile causes if you want to help out other comic creators. I think Hero Initiative is the one that comes to mind uh, as the one, as the charity that helps out comic creators who are in need of assistance. Uh, if you wish, you can uh, follow me on Facebook at Ep- Epic Marvel Podcast or Instagram or Twitter. You can find me in all of these places. And I have a special Epic Collection Facebook group that uh, you might want to join as well to be part of the conversation there. Uh, And you can also find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack if you want to send a couple of bucks and help keep my podcast afloat. That would be much appreciated. But other than that, I think that's all I have to say. Uh, Yeah, check out... Bill Mantlow's Facebook page as well, which is moderated by Michael. And uh, so like I previously mentioned, you can't give to the GoFundMe page anymore, but I did leave a little bit of that conversation in the interview toward the end there, just because there's there's just some life stuff that I think is still worth hearing about and, and still worth talking about. So, so that's there. But uh, other than that, I hope you enjoy this interview with Michael Mantlow talking about his brother Bill. I know it was you have two brothers, right? Correct. Bill is the oldest, I'm the middle, and my brother Art is the youngest. And did you all grow up reading comic books? Uh, no, not, not really. Uh, Bill was the big comic book reader. I was, you know... At, at times, off and on, I was uh, up there with him, reading as many as well. Never, I never, I could never read as many as he did. But uh, I was, I was into them for for a little while. Uh, but then I, I went off on my my track or my tangent. Uh, I was more into just being outside, running around, being being like a little kid. Uh, he he was a voracious reader. Yeah, that, that was the only thing that gave him any joy. Well. When when he was a kid, he was he was into art. He he originally wanted to be an artist, uh, not a writer. And uh, it was only later in life, when he when he got into high school and college, that he realized that art wasn't going to get him where he wanted to go. And and he always felt had the the fallback position of of writing because the, the two of us, my, my younger brother was a, was a little different. He was unfortunately kind of the the TV generation kid of the family. Uh, and, and, and everything for him was 
mom and dad left it to, to TV to keep him occupied. And he just <laughs> yeah. basically became kind of a TV zombie, you know? Yeah. You know? And, and me and Bill were, were reading and, and, and doing regular kid things from, from in the 50s and 60s. And it was just, just completely different tracks. What kind of comics did Bill read when he was growing up? Uh, well, everything started off with uh, classic comics. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with those. Uh, it, it was a run of comics where they, where they did kind of Reader's Digest versions in comic book form of, of novels and, and historical things. Right. Um, and, and he read all of those. My, my parents gladly gave them to us because it was kind of educational. <laughs> um, Mom... Mom pushed, you know, reading as much as possible. We were, we were, we were at the library every week, and we we belonged to book clubs, and we read all the the, the Hardy Boys and the the other I forget what the other guys were, what names were. Uh, but but there was you know a series of books that we all read, and then Bill eventually moved into into more science fiction reading, and the science fiction reading I think is what led him to comics. Um, because he he started off with the uh, <laughs> the cheap comics, the uh, with the Charlton and Dell, uh, and, and then then when when Marvel got into more more of the superhero stuff or the, or the, the fantasy stuff, he he fell in love with that, and and it was at that point it was nonstop. He he bought any and everything that he could get his hands on, and he read every one of them, and reread them, and reread them, and. Basically, that was that was the beginning of everything. Wow, yeah, buying everything. That's and what a time to be doing that too, uh, as the kind of the Marvel universe is exploding <laughs> into into popularity or into existence, I guess. Yeah, you're correct. Uh, were there particular favorites of his at all? Which characters did he tend to steer? It was such a change from Superman and Batman, which was which was really the the, the big superhero comics before Marvel hit their stride, right. it was it was all Superman and Batman. And, and as much as we like those two, Superman and Batman, DC Comics were, were more too much uh, like like goody-goody and preachy about how good has to always be the, the one that comes out on top. And, you know, they, they never really veered off of the path of Superman is the good guy, he's all-American, he's going to save the day. You know, Marvel came along and... and the heroes had problems, and and, and they, they faced villains that, that Superman and Batman never kind of fa- never faced any of the kind of villains that that the Marvel guys faced. Okay, yeah. And I I believe I I could be wrong, but I believe the first first Marvel comic he got his hands on was a Fantastic Four comic, and and fell in love with it. And again, just started grabbing everything he get 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 his hands on. And the first character that he that he really fell in love with was Spider-Man, primarily because Spider-Man came from Queens, New York, just like we did. Uh-huh. And, and it was, you know, the, the storyline was, was kind of similar. It was, it was a high school kid that, that got these extraordinary powers, and, and Bill looked at that and said, wow, you know, that could be me. <laughs> right, yeah. How about you? Which ones were your favorites? Uh, I, I was a big fan of Thor, Captain America, uh, I don't know why, but it's, uh, for some reason the, the blonde hair, blue eye thing uh, <laughs> struck a note with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also a big fan of the westerns. Uh, I loved the Rawhide Kid, Kid Cold. Uh, I forget what the other guy's name was. that wore the black outfit. Two Two Gun Kid. Yeah, it, it might have been Two Gun Kid. I, I honestly don't remember. I, I remember Rawhide Kid and Kid Cold, but uh, the other guy, I, I don't. Can't quite put my finger on what he was. What you know, I can I can remember the the TV shows, all the westerns that we that we grew up watching, and again, a lot of that played a played a big part in everything that Bill and I both did. There was so much imaginative stuff on TV at the time. Um, you know, this is this is the from black and white morphed into color TV, and and. Twilight Zone and the other show, and, and, and all the, the westerns, and, and then and then eventually Star Trek, and you know everything just just kind of exploded. Yeah. You know, for the, the period of, of the mid fifties to the mid sixties were just absolutely amazing. And, and then, you know, and of course you have to throw in Saturday matinee movies, you know, <laughs> which which we did almost every. You know, we, we go to a movie theater and you get a double feature for fifty cents. 
and you could sit and watch uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing, you know, and all of these crazy movies. So he went to art school. You mentioned this already that he kind of started out kind of getting into art. Yeah, he, he uh, well, we, well, when he finished junior high school, uh, he, he got a, an invite or, or uh, kind, of a, kind of a scholarship. Not really a scholarship, but you had, you had to take a test, uh, like an art test. <laughs> you know, you know the thing they used to have on the backs of comics. Yeah. Uh, draw this picture and send it in, and, and, and you know, if you qualify, if they think your art is good enough, they, they'll send you an acceptance letter, and you can go to this school, of okay. course. Tied to that, which they don't tell anybody, is they're going to ask your parents to contribute to the school. But <laughs> whatever, whatever the reason was, it worked for him. He, he got accepted into the High School of Art and Design in New York City. Uh, which which meant a commute from Queens into into Manhattan to go to school, but because he went there because he wanted to go there and, and he was so into the art and, and and getting into the art field, you know. And my parents said, "Okay, we'll we'll support it." I eventually did the same thing. I I passed the same stupid test and, and got the same acceptance letter. My mom took it and hid it in the drawer and wouldn't let me know about it because she didn't want me going into the city. <laughs> what, really? <laughs> That's too bad. Oh. Well, well, you know, as a little child, you deal with things like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so after that high school then? He, he went through high school, um, again, primarily focusing on art and, and doing art as, as some kind of way to... to make a living or, or to get into college, uh, he got he earned a scholarship to uh, Cooper Union College in New York City, uh, and he got a full scholarship, full boat, and he went there, and, and it was in Cooper Union that, that everything started to switch. Uh, he, he started to realize that his art wasn't what he what he had hoped it would be, it wasn't up to, up to the level that, that would get him anywhere down the road. So he switched over from art to photography. Okay. And at that point, everything was photography. He was, he was taking pictures of anything and everything. He went on a, a, a sojourn up into New England and took pictures of doorknobs, ancient uh, or antique doorknobs, and, and had a whole portfolio of nothing but antique doorknobs. Wow. And uh, he was very good. Uh, he, he always had an artistic view of things, but... Same thing. He, he graduated from Cooper Union with a degree in photography, with a bachelor's degree. And when he got out of, got out of college, <laughs> finding a job for photography was not such a simple thing. Um, so, you know, after, after knocking around for a couple of years and, and having, having to be bored to death by, by taking a job as a photographer in E.J. Corvette's department store, as a, you know, the Christmas photos for the kids and, you know, just that kind of kind of garbage photography. He, <laughs> some some uh, a friend of his was working at Marvel at the time. I, I I'm not really sure, but I don't I don't want to say the wrong name. So I, I'll leave, I'll leave that kind of nameless. Okay. But it was a friend of his, uh, a female female friend of his that that had gone to uh, either either Art and Design High School or Cooper Union with him and had gotten a job in Marvel. Said to him, you know. Come over, come over to Marvel and, and put in an application. We'll see, we'll see if we can get you in here. And he, he went over to Marvel and they, they gave him a job. They brought him in as, as a paste up, working in the paste up department. And, you know, basically doing, doing odd jobs, just, just whatever he could do to, to get his foot in the door. Uh, he got in there and then he was, he was, he was happy, but wasn't exactly what he, what he had planned for his, for his, for his career. But he, his foot was in the door. He was in the right place. And then the, the story is, uh, one magical afternoon, Tony Isabella came running into the, the paste-up department saying, uh, one, of, one of his right, Tony Isabella at that time was the editor, uh, and he came into the paste-up department and said, one of his writers couldn't meet the deadline. He had, he had an issue that, was, that needed to be done and, and in production by, so that it could come out the next day, and he didn't know what to do. And he was tearing his hair out, what, what little hair he had, uh, tearing his hair out, and, and Bill said, somebody to write a story? I can write a story for you. And Tony said to him, go ahead, go ahead, do it, let me see what you got. And, and so, again, this is, this is the story, this is the fable. I, I don't know 
if it's completely true, if it's just shades of, of the truth, but the story is that he went out on his lunch hour and wrote a story, he came back in, handed it to Tony, and Tony said, you know what, this is not so bad. Nice. He gave it to him, uh, I believe it was, it, was, it was in a monster title, uh, a horror title, um, I don't know if it was Werewolf by Night or... Yeah, Werewolf by Night is his his first credit, I think, yeah. Yeah, so so he, he submitted the story, Tony, Tony put it in, and from that point, Tony was very happy with it, and and Tony kept kept coming back to him and saying, oh, I have another writer that, that's got a, missing a deadline, or he's got writer's block, or he can't come up with any fresh ideas. Do you have anything, Bill? And Bill... Got into the got into the got to the point where he was considered like the fill-in king. Anybody that couldn't meet their deadline, or anybody that couldn't give Tony an acceptable story for for the next month's issue, Tony would come to Bill, and Bill would write a story, and and it would run. And and he got more and more, more and more assignments. And at that point, then it then it you know eventually graduated to the to the point where they would give him his own titles or his own books. A lot of that started out with the with the toy books, right. because nobody somebody else at Marvel really wanted to touch the the, the Micronauts or, or the ROMs or the, you know the things that were licensed toys and coming up with a story for them. Bill saw it as an opportunity to to, to just go crazy to to do write whatever he wanted to write, create whatever he wanted to create, and he was very successful at it. Were there particular favorites of his that he worked on, either his regular series or his fill-ins? I, I have to say that Micronauts was absolutely one of one of his favorites because it was his. You know, it was it was the first thing that was really his. Other than that, he he was Cloak and Dagger was his absolute favorite of everything because again that was that was his creation. He could actually say, "This is my creation." The, right. the, the Micronauts. You know, he had the licensing thing. It was always hanging over his head that, that he didn't create the Micronauts. He created the story. But the Micronauts were already in existence. He just made a story for them. But Cloak and Dagger was his baby from start to finish, and, and that was his proudest accomplishment. He was he was also very, very proud of the fact that he got to write Peter Parker's spectacular Spider-Man right. uh, because Spider-Man was, was a a long-time favorite. But he wrote <laughs> nearly every title. I, I, I honestly, I, I tried to think of it, I, I think it's a possible, uh, actually, I, I can't even say, I, I, I'm, I can't say that I think X-Men was the only title that he might not have ever been involved with, but I know he did. He, he wrote a graphic novel of the X, with the X-Men. Uh, so I think he wrote nearly, as, as a student, or, you know, However, Marvel needed to use him. He he penned stories for for nearly every character in the Marvel universe. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and to, so he gets to put his mark on every single character. At least one issue is just fantastic. That's what a what an incredible legacy and, that is. And I re- I specifically remember at one time in the, in the mid seventies, uh, he he had a. A house up in the, in the in the country in New York, up in northern northern New York, uh, that he used to go to, and and he would go he would go up there to write, and you know, I, he was he, he was still writing. He lived in, in Manhattan, and he was writing at home, but he would like to get away and and go up there and, and keep his mind free of everything. He'd go up there and then not be bothered with anything that was going on outside in the outside world. And at that point, he was writing eight titles a month. Eight different titles. Wow! And how he kept the story straight, I I could never understand that. He told me, "Oh, simple. You you, you just you have the same basic outline for every story. It's, it's hero comes in, faces a dilemma. The hero takes care of the dilemma and, and rides off into the sunset as the hero. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he made it work. Yep. And then having 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 such a, a strong memory of of all the comics he read as a kid." It was almost a photographic memory. He he could pick up storylines, you know, that, that had stopped maybe maybe five years earlier. They had they had switched story or, or arc lines or whatever they call it in comics trade. But he could go back and say, mm, you know what? I remember when 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 Spider Man was fighting against this guy, and, and let me bring that story back into it. And and he could 
he could pick things up and, and run with it and create all new storylines about these, these characters that existed in the past that, that none of the other writers at Marvel seemed to be able to do. And, and again, he was, he was very successful. Do you know anything more about um, about the the creation of Micronauts? Because I, from what I understand, it, even bringing that toy line to the table was his idea. Yeah, uh, Micronauts was was a toy line uh, by was either Mego or Hasbro. I mean, I'm not sure which which company originally created the Micronauts, the toys. And when they came out, there was no story. There was no comic book. There was nothing about Micronauts. It was just it was a Japanese toy company, and they they based it on I, I think a character in Japan that was called Micro Man, and they they created this line of toys. My mom had bought for for Bill's stepson a bunch of these toys for for a Christmas present. Okay. And his stepson was opening, opening the toys and playing with them on, on Christmas. And Bill looked at the toys and said, hmm, there's, there's, there's something here that I, could do, that I could do, you know? So apparently he went to, um, I think at that point, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. Uh, he went to Shooter and said, pitch the idea to him that I'd like to create a story about these guys. And, and they gave me the green light because, no, again, nobody else in Marvel wanted to touch the, 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 the toy lines. And Shooter said to him, well, come up with something and give it to me and let, let's see what you got. And he, he came up with the story and he got together with uh, Michael Golden and they, they created this whole universe and they brought it in and, and Marvel said, okay, go with it. They didn't expect much, but they said, oh, we'll give it a try. It wound up running seventy five issues. Wow. And and Rom as well has become such a cult classic. Rom is is almost exactly the same thing. It was uh because of the success of Micronauts, this time Shooter came to Bill and said, Ah, we got this other toy. Uh it's called Rom and he showed him Rom and showed him the the, the cheesy toy that they had created. Uh, not Marvel but the the toy company. Yeah. And and Bill said, well, hey, I think I might be able to do something with this. And he went home, and, and same thing, came up with a story that, that he brought back in, and they said, yeah, this might work. And, and it did. Yeah, and just the world that he created to go along with this cheesy toy, <laughs> it's just incredible. Just the the world building is just amazing. All the characters and the history, the mythology of Rom has become such a big thing now and has carried on past Marvel and to other publishers that have done Ron, Ron comics as well. Just amazing. Yeah, I'm aware of that too. <laughs> yeah. He had a good run on The Incredible Hulk as well. Yes, he did. Uh, that's, that seems to be the, the one that, that has given him the most uh, critical acclaim. You know, I, I'm, I have to admit, I, I wasn't as familiar with, with what he was doing on the Hulk at the time because I was away in the military. Uh, but he apparently came up with a storyline that, that everybody everybody looks back on now and says, you know, this this is kind of like a groundbreaking point for the, for the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, he gave Hulk his intelligence back, which instead of retreading the old stories that had been told for the past couple of decades, it's like, let's try something new. And that's the, it shows a lot of Bill's creativity and willing to think outside the box um, and also editorial's willingness to take a chance on Bill to do something so drastic. Because once you give Hulk his intelligence yeah. back, like he, he, it kind of takes away from the core of the character. But yeah, very, very great stuff. Yeah, it's great to great to be able to read that and just look and, and realize how influential that is. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Cloak and Dagger, do you, what do you know about the creation of those characters? Uh, well, again, Bill lived in Manhattan, um, and in that, at that time period, uh, where his apartment was is, wasn't, wasn't the greatest neighborhood in, in, in Manhattan. There, there was a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, a lot of problems, and, and he wanted to come up with something to reflect something needed to be done, you know, and he didn't want it to be Charles Bronson as you know, a vigilante, but something needed to be done to to help 
real people uh, against what was the, the scourge that was that was enveloping all of Manhattan at that time, and, and it built from from the seventies up until the nineties, and then in the nineties, uh, much as I disagree with the politics of it, but in the nineties, the, the political shift in New York kind of cleaned up New York City. Uh, and Bill, Bill wanted very much for, for New York City to be kind of kind of like his utopia, you know. And he wanted it to be a city where where everybody got along and everybody protected each other and everybody helped each other. And, and Cloak and Dagger seemed to be the, the right kind of characters to do that. That's amazing. And they appeared in first in the pages of Spider Man, um, and then correct. He got it, his opportunity to to spin these characters off to the, their own book. That must have been quite thrilling. I, I, again, I, I, he, he is, they, they are the characters that he is the proudest of creating. He tells me that all the time, that that, that was his baby. He, he absolutely absolutely loved working, with, with, working on that title. Mm-hmm. There was another another title, uh, kind of kind of an obscure one, but in, in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, yeah, Bill created White and White Tiger was was a collaboration between Bill and George Perez, uh, because Bill and George Perez were, were good friends at the time, and Bill said this. apparently again you know this is the stories that I have heard secondhand that heard either heard from Bill or from other people uh, Bill apparently pitched an idea to George Perez that he wanted to create a Hispanic hero because there were no Hispanic heroes in the comics and he came up with White Tiger who was Hector Ayala and Hector happened to be the name of Bill's closest friend in high school oh and I don't know where he got the Ayala from, but that's that's how they came up with with the White Tiger. Wow, nice, yeah. And that character has gone on to some pretty good things too. There's a shift in the late '80s, and he decides to go to law school. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, he's he he was buddy heads along with along with quite a few other people at Marvel, uh, the Marvel bullpen. Um, there was there was a lot of grumbling going on about creators' rights. Um, there was there was talk of unionizing and, and you know trying to trying to take back what was theirs because, like every other comic company, Marvel didn't didn't really recognize the people that that were creating things that made them successful. And Marvel at that point was was. It was a pay for, pay for hire, a job. You you worked for Marvel. You created something. You got paid by the page. You didn't get paid by what you created. They didn't give you anything if the comic book was a success right. or if it was a failure. You got the you get the same rate of pay for for anything that you did, and they paid them by the page. Uh, and a lot of the people that were working at the time were frustrated because. Marvel was, was huge. Marvel exploded and had become so huge that they, they knew the company was making a lot of money and they weren't sharing it. Um, Stan, and Stan, basically by himself, was, was pretty much the only one sharing you know, all the, the mega profits. So they, they decided, you know what? I, I think they, they pretty much all took the lead of Jack Kirby because Jack Kirby was the most powerful name besides Stan Lee and Marvel. And when, when Kirby left and went over to DC and, and did his own stuff uh, with Pops with Comics and, and, uh, and other, other titles, the people that, that were still there at Marvel got the idea, you know what, there is a world outside of here. We don't all have to stay here. And Bill had decided at that point that, you know what, writing comic books for the rest of my life, I don't know how much of a future there is in this. Uh, he was married at the time, had a kid. And and he had bills to pay, and and being paid by the page wasn't really getting it done. So he he found out that Marvel had a, a program to to give scholarships, and he managed to get a scholarship to go back to to go back to school, and he went to law school. He went to Brooklyn Law School, got his degree in in uh, three years instead of the the, the usual four. Nice. 
And there's kind of some comical things about that too, that, which he told me because at that time he, we were writing letters back and forth when I was in the military and he was, he was talking to me about what he was doing. And, and, and he had told me that, you know, law school is not so hard. I said, how, how could it not be hard? It's, you know, you have to you have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of reading to do. He goes, well, you know, reading has never been a problem for me. I said, okay, but it's a lot to do. And you're working full time at the same time. Understand, you know, how this is, how you think it's so easy. He goes, listen, he goes, when, when, when I go into my, into my classes, we discuss cases and then, when we have exams, the exams are based on you have to use case histories of things that you're that you're citing or that you're quoting. He goes, I make it all up. He goes, fifty percent of everything that I that I put on a test paper, it was just from from my mind. He goes, there were there were no such cases, there were no such characters, and people didn't bring lawsuits with, with these names. He goes, I made it all up, and I handed it in, and the professors just passed off on it. <laughs> Wow, and so did he? Uh, did he get a job in the, that industry then afterwards? And he 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 got his he got his law degree in. I uh, uh, would have to imagine it was the mid eighties, early to mid eighties. He got the the law degree, passed the bar in New York. He looked for a job for a while. Couldn't couldn't really find anything. He, he took a job in, a, in what's called a, a white shoe law firm. Uh, kind of kind of clerking or, or, you know, assisting other lawyers or being a, a, a law, law assistant or whatever they, whatever the title is for that. And, and we didn't like it. It was, it was just, you know, lawsuits and, and civil cases and, and he wasn't thrilled with it. Yeah. He wanted to be a, a, he wanted to be a defense attorney. He wanted to, to be a trial lawyer. And he told me that being a trial lawyer is, is exactly like being on stage on Broadway. He goes, that's what I want. I want to be on stage every day when I go to work. So he got a job with the Legal Aid Society in the Bronx in New York as a, as a what, what they, the defense attorney that, that they appoint to people who can't afford to pay in a, a, public, a public, defender. public defender. Yeah. Correct. So he took that job uh, in 19... I think 1987 was when he started with them. Okay. Uh, as a public defender, and and he he loved it. It, it. it wasn't a lot of pay, but he loved it. And he was he was still writing on the side. He was doing side things. So he, did, he did a couple of things for DC, Pirates of the the the, the outer space pirates thing. Uh, for for yeah, Marvel. Oh, of the Swash. Swords of the Swash. Uh, now that was that was technically a Marvel offshoot company. It, it wasn't directly for Marvel, but right. Marvel gave him, he, he pitched the story to them, and, and they said, okay, we'll, we'll give you a run on this, and so he did Swords of the Swashbucklers for them, nice. he did, he worked on the uh, Infinity series in, in, for DC, um, he did some, some things for, for other small companies that, I, that I'm not quite... <laughs> I don't. I don't have it at my fingertips or on the tip of my tongue. Right. But he was continuing to write, and while he was doing that, he was also writing short stories, uh, magazine articles. He eventually graduated up to. He he started to write screenplays. Okay. And when he when he dipped he dipped his toe into that pool, he jumped in full force, and that he he decided at that point. Now this is this is the late eighties. Going into the nineties, he decided, "This is what I want to do. I want to, I want to direct." I, basically, what he said. But he, he says, "The only way I'm gonna, ever going to get to direct anything is I need to, to get a su- successful screenplay someplace." So he was attending all sorts of seminars uh, and, and trying to figure out how do you write successful screenplays. And he he was. 24 hours a day, he was just writing and writing and writing and writing. He, he had a stack of screenplays that he had written, and you know he would he would toss it on the pile and say, "Nah, it's not good enough. I'll do another one." And he would do another one, and and he just he just kept going, kept going, and kept going. But at the same time, he was he was practicing law, and while he was doing all that, I guess as, as some kind of a physical release to to 
get his mind clear or get his head clear, he decided to take up rollerblading. Mm. Uh, and that became his passion. He was he was rollerblading 20 miles a day. He was doing marathons, uh, competitions, and, and, and he fell in love with it. Wow. And not only was it his passion, but it turned out to be the the worst thing he ever did. Yeah. I would love to hear more about that. But before we move into into that portion of his life, let's. Um, I just want to know: did he? Did any of his screenplays ever get picked up or ever get used at all? No. Uh, right before the accident, he he had submitted something to somebody out in California, and he said that he had gotten he had been in contact with somebody for Star Trek: The Next Generation, which oh. had just become popular on, on TV at that time. Right. And they were interested in something that he had written, but nothing ever, came, nothing more ever came of that. And then, you know, the accident happened, and, and again, again, everything just, everything just stopped. Yeah. Well, can we talk about the accident? If you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think most people who know Bill Mantlone just know that this is uh, something that happened to him. He was struck by. It was a hit and run. Struck by a car. The guy drove off, and you you never found out who did it, right? Correct. Correct. He was she was working again, still still working as a public defender up in the Bronx, uh, and it was a Friday afternoon, July seventeenth, nineteen ninety two. Uh, he had he was planning to go on vacation, go up to his summer house up in the, up in northern New York, and he had left work early, left work at like one o'clock, and he was rollerblading home from the Bronx to Manhattan. And he came down uh, Morningside Drive in Manhattan, which for, for the anybody that knows anything about Manhattan, Morningside Drive is, is northern Manhattan, kind of in Harlem, uh, and it runs alongside a park called Morningside Park. Um, wasn't the greatest area in the world at that time. Uh, again, a lot of drugs, a lot of bad people up there in that in that part of the Manhattan. But he lived up there, and. He was rollerblading home on Morningside Drive, and somebody came flying around the corner along the park. And, and according to the only witness that, that anybody ever talked to or anybody ever had any contact with, the witness said the, the car came along parallel to where Bill was, was rollerblading, and then right in front of him decided to turn a corner and turned right in front of Bill. Bill couldn't stop. He went over the the left front side of the car, put his hands on the on the hood of the car to try to walk over it, and because the car was going so fast, it threw him into the windshield. Oh. He hit his head against the windshield. The car kept going, threw him over the roof and and back onto the street. His head hit the street when he hit when he landed, and that was it. I took off. Nobody ever found him. Nobody ever really did anything to find him. Even though we came up with some leads, my father and I both were in the city every day for about a week after the injury and trying to find out things and going around the neighborhood and asking questions. We came up with license plate numbers and descriptions, but the police didn't do anything. And when we gave them the information, you know, I. Can't give names of, of the police that I talked to. No, but of course not. They said to me, "He didn't die, did he?" And I said, "No, he's, he's in the hospital in a coma." They said, "Well, he didn't die. Accidents like this happen all the time. If he didn't die, there's there's really not much we can do about it." Wow, really? Oh, that's so. That was pretty much the way everything went. You know, uh, he went into St. Luke's Hospital through the emergency room. Um, they did everything they could, and they saved it. They saved his life, but they couldn't save his brain. Um, it was it was so badly damaged. Um, like I said, he was he was in a coma. He was in a coma for two weeks, uh, and then and they had told us. Well, they called the whole family in. They said to my parents and me, "You have to make a decision. You want to keep him on the on the machines." Uh, he's in the coma, or do you want us to unplug the machines and let let Kate take its take its toll? And at that point, you know, how are you how are you supposed to make that that kind of a decision? Yeah, you know? right. The, the pressure that my parents were under at that point, he was still alive. 
why would you make a decision to, to not let him continue to be alive? Yeah. You know, everything was covered by insurance, so it was, wasn't any kind of money issue. And they said, no, we don't want you to unplug anything. We want you to keep him alive. Hope, hopefully he will come out of the coma and we can, we can try to bring him back. So that was the decision that was made. And two weeks into the, into the coma, he, we were standing in his room. My mother was holding his hand. Sorry. It's okay. And she was, she was talking to him. And she said, if you can hear me, sorry. If you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And he did. Wow. And we... He ran out into the hall to get the doctors, and the doctor came in and ran a, a pencil up his foot and said, no, nah, he's not responding to anything. And my parents went crazy. Said, he's responding. He's, he squeezed my hand. I asked him to do it. He did it. My father held his hand. He did the same thing. He said, squeeze my hand. Bill did. Wow. So... So the doctors finally <laughs> accepted the truth and, and said, okay, he's, he's, he's responding, but he's still in the coma. And then a, a day or two later, he came out, he opened up his eyes and came out of the coma. Uh, when somebody comes out of a coma that they're in for any extended time, I, you know, I, I don't know how much you're aware of how, of how all this works or anybody else is aware of how all this works, but he had lost all the ability to speak, or the ability to swallow, or the ability to do anything on his own, so everything was still being assisted by machines. Okay. So, that, that, that's, you know, at that point, then, then the recovery process, or the rehabilitation process begins, and that's, that's where, we, where we went from there. Uh, he, he bounced around from hospital to hospital to hospital, uh, me fighting with the insurance company to make sure he had coverage until until it was absolutely to the point that that somebody said, no, he's just not going to not going to go any further. And, and at that point, then everything cuts out. Wow. So we did that. I, I managed to, to fight with them for two and a half years to, to keep the coverage. And and he went through more than a million dollars worth of medical costs, uh, but everything was covered. Because because I can kept fighting with everybody, got it covered, and then eventually it got to the point where they said he's just not progressing any further. And at this point, the insurance company has pulled the plug, and they've gone to the doctors and gotten the doctors to say that it's not medically necessary for him to be in rehab anymore. He needs to be go someplace where he can just be in a. In a uh, uh, Sort of like like a hospice thing. They don't call it hospice for, for, for people that are not in danger of dying, but like a full a full care kind of place. Yeah, it, and again, you know, when I'm talking about things like this, I I I, I hit like you know recuperative care or respite care. Or it's it's basically maintenance. It's a maintenance program. That's what they call it. Okay. So they said. You know, the act of rehabilitation is not doing anything for him. He's not progressing, so he needs to be someplace where he can just have maintenance. So that's the, that. Then the search went on for me to find someplace for him that, that he could have maintenance. And because he was a New York City resident, uh, New York State determined that he has to be in a facility in New York, which was okay because the whole family lived in New York. Right. So. We found only one facility that would that would accept him. That's the facility that he's in now, that he's been in since 1995. Wow! And you took the role of his caregiver for all of these years. Correct. It was in, in, when again when he when he was in the hospitals and then bouncing back and forth. <clears throat> my parents were in their seventies, and. My younger brother was was married and had two kids. No, I had a, had one kid. Bill had a, had his stepson and his daughter. Uh, I didn't have any kids. I was I was divorced. I was living in New York, you know, by myself. And my parents 
their health wasn't wasn't the greatest in the world. They were they were getting older, and, and I said, okay, somebody needs to be appointed his guardian. So they, we went through the court process and got me appointed as his guardian, and I've done that legally and technically since 1994. I've been appointed his guardian and, and trustee, and I take care of everything involving him. Wow. Wow. That's that's incredible. What is a typical day like for Bill these days? Um, at this point, really, a typical day is for him, he's pretty much stays in bed almost all the day uh, unless somebody in the nursing home can, can get him to sit up in the wheelchair for a little while. Uh, he, he has the ability to do pretty much everything. He just doesn't have the, the mental ability to, to control his body to make it do the things that he wants it to do. Okay. So he can't technically get up and walk on his own. Uh, he can walk, his, his legs work, his, his arms work, his body works. He could get up and walk with a walker. He could get up and walk with, with somebody holding onto his arm, but he can't do it on his own. If he, if he tries to stand up on his own, he'll just fall over. So he prefers to kind of stay in bed. Uh, uh, and I, again, you know, I, I, I can't go into a lot of details about what his condition is or what, what happens with him, but okay. his, his uh, revolutionary uh, mindset when he, when he was younger carried over into the injury, and, and he's fought against rehabilitation, fought against all the people that have tried to help him, which doesn't do him a whole lot of good. Right. Um, so he's left with, okay, he's kind of on his own. You know, they'll they'll help him. They'll they'll get him dressed. They'll they'll feed him. They'll bathe him to to the best extent possible. And and yeah, basically he he'll stay in bed and he'll either either pretend to be asleep or he'll or he'll stay in bed and yelling at people to to leave him alone and do things, uh, keep quiet. And that's it. No, he doesn't doesn't get much visitation except for for me and my wife. And that's pretty much his existence. You know, he 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 lays in the bed. If if one of the one of the attendants or nurses is kind enough to to sit with him and, and try to talk to him, then he gets a little into human interaction, but really not much. Does he enjoy like TV and that kind of thing? Then no, no, he's he's anti everything. Uh, he he doesn't want doesn't want TV, doesn't want radio, doesn't want anything except for quiet. Oh. He wants to be in his room, in his bed, quiet. He doesn't want anybody bothering him. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of, he's created his own situation in some, in some aspects or some respects. Right. And it's a shame, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's not something that, that I would wish on anybody. It's, it's, and, and for Bill, specifically, because everything he did was a product of his imagination and his, the ability of his mind, for him not to have control over that is just the absolute worst thing that could ever happen. Yeah. Now, you posted some pictures the other day of, um, I guess, Chris Rael from IDW had sent a, a couple of presents over. Yeah, yeah, there's there's been some amazing people over the over these last 27 years. I have I have come, come in contact and met and communicated with with so many people, and, and there's, there's really there's, there are some angels out there, quite a few of them, and and the comics industry has stepped up big time, and you know there, there's there's a lot of love out there for Bill. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your situation now, because you just put up um, a GoFundMe page. Yeah, well, that's true. You always you, you stress in there that this this is your problem, that the problem that you are in. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it's it, it's my mismanagement of my money. Uh, you know, I I'm not in this situation because of because of Bill. Uh, it's you know, Bill Bill has. Bill has gotten compensation from from Marvel and from other sources, and and he's he's okay money wise. 
there's no problem with, with Bill's finances. My mismanagement of my finances, you know, it's not all because of me taking care of Bill, but, but basically the last 20, 25 years of my life, this, this is pretty much all I've done. In, 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 <laughs> out of those 25 years, it's only in the last 10 years that I've done something for myself, which is I got married, remarried, and trying to start a life for, for me and my wife. And, but other than that, my life has been revolved around taking care of Bill and making sure that he's okay. And that's why I think, though, that people are so um, eager and willing to help you out, um, even though you state it's your problem, but it's still because like, you're, anything that we give is going to indirectly, I guess, help Bill as well. And for someone who's touched so many lives through his writing and through his creativity, um, we're happy to we're happy to help. And I am very appreciative of, of all the help because it, it, it's absolutely amazing. Like I said, there, there, there are a lot of angels out there, a lot of good people, and, and I I would never be able to repay any of these any of these people to any extent. And, and basically, I, I am forever in everybody's debt. Yeah, well, it, and it's our way of saying thank you for taking care of Bill all these years, sacrificing your own career, your life, or whatever, um, to do that. It's it's just such an honorable thing to do. So we are we're happy to support. That's what you're supposed to do is take care of your family. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you ha- you run the Bill Mantlow page on Facebook. Uh, where people come Correct. people come together and talk about Bill and share the stories or share artwork and and that kind of thing and uh, if you want to get connected with Michael uh, you can go there and and chat, chat with him there and yeah I think that's that's kind of where we're at now this is present day and I uh, I'm excited to see you say you're trying to build something so that you can get Bill out of the space that he's in now and I think that's really neat well it's 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 been a, a, my goal for the last 25 years is, is to get him out of that nursing home, to get him to be able to be home with his family. You know, me and my wife, I, I, I built a house right next to mine on my property. I, I would like to think that, that eventually he will be able to come and live in this house. Just right, right now, at this point in time, it's not, not, not looking like it's possible, but... The future, I hope, will be a little bit brighter. I want to thank you, Michael, for taking the time to talk about Bill and to talk about yourself and for being open and willing to talk about this. its I know it's a difficult subject. It brings back a lot of memories, but we appreciate it. And we want to keep Bill's memory of his, his career and the things that he has accomplished alive. And, it, and, um, and this is a great way to do that. So thank you for being a part of this. And, I, and likewise, I thank you and all the listeners and everybody out there in the comics universe because really, really, it, it means the world to me. And by, by extension, it means the world to Bill because I will continue to be able to, to visit with him and, and hopefully do, do things, more and more things for him. Perfect. Perfect.